Well, uh, good morning again, everybody. My name is Jamin. I'm another pastor here. Mandy and I are the pastors here at Christ City Church, and I'm really glad to be with you all in person and online. And we're coming back after a short break from last week when we had the snow apocalypse in Memphis, right? I had a little bit of snow on the ground, and everybody ran to the store and bought cans of goods and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, just just real briefly, I just wanted to touch on that because we didn't have a service, we didn't even, we didn't do anything online. We just said like, hey, you know, just chill out, hang out with your friends. You can read a blog, you know, uh, catch up on a past sermon online that that you have no doubt missed some in the past year. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to share a reason why we do that uh, sometimes, why we rest. Uh, because w- the church doesn't need to be a constant producer of material information. We are, we're not a capitalist running engine at a church. We're not. We're, we're, we're founded and we hold together on the receiving of grace, getting things you didn't earn, you don't have to work for. And so we need, our, our message needs to match the medium through which that message comes through, which means that as a church, we want to cultivate a culture where it's okay to rest, where it's okay to be tired, where it's okay to take a Sabbath, and so um, that's, that's what we want to practice from the top to the bottom of our church leadership. So I just wanted to start off with that. We're in a series right now. The second, the second uh, service in this series called Kinfolk. And this series is about belonging. It's about the choices that we make and the choices that other people make around us that have to do with what matters most to us and where we choose to spend our time and our energy, but not just that, also who do we consider kin? And this idea of kin, it's, it's a really old idea. And in the, in the ancient world, the, the nuclear family, just a, a, a husband and a wife and some kids was, was there and it was intact, but it was part of this far greater tapestry of relationships. And, and this, these relationships were needed sometimes for survival, for protection, but they were also developed and strengthened because of shared experiences together, shared beliefs, uh, shared traumatic events that had happened. And thus contracts were made that were strong, as strong as, if not stronger than, blood, familia, blood types of relationships. And I've had a lot of time to think about things like that, as many of us probably have over the past year and a half, is what are the relationships that really matter to me? Where, where do I belong and, and who belongs to me? And so as I looked at the, the lectionary scriptures uh, for the next several weeks and talked through that with Mandy and Ben, this idea began to emerge about what do we do with that? This idea of, of kin in the ancient world, in the scriptures, and then as Christians, as believers. And so we're, we're exploring 
that idea of family, of, of something beyond blood relatives connecting us to some greater sense of, of family, kinfolk. And we started that series the week before last talking about baptism, about being born into a new family uh, through uh, the, the washing of water. And that being the family that's united under the head of Jesus Christ and his bodily sacrifice and resurrection. This week, we're talking about the other sacrament that all Christian churches observe. There's, there's two, two of those. The first is baptism and the second is communion. The consumption, the, the receiving of bread and the drinking of wine in order to connect us to a family over and over again, a weekly tradition that we have, a weekly sacrament. And we're gonna get there through this passage in John 2. So here we go. Um, let's jump into this. I got married 10 and a half years ago. And when I got married, me and my wife, we stood in front of a few hundred people in Overton Park in June. So it was nice and hot. And we, uh, we exchanged vows together. And when I exchanged those vows with my wife, I knew what the words meant that I was saying. And I knew that I meant those words, but I really didn't know what those words meant. You feel me? You understand what I'm saying? I, 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 I believed what I was saying, and yet I hadn't had the experiences yet in order to fully begin to comprehend. And you know, the thing about it is, in marriage, you don't just get wise just by being married for a long time. You, you, wise to what marriage is. You actually have to take input, receive, reflect, invite other people into your life, into your ways of thinking to help you grow in what it means. Some people's marriages and relationships, they, they stay really, really similar over long periods of time. And maybe at some point they even give up on that it could be any different. And actually, I think communion is a lot like that. I think receiving the bread and the wine is, is kind of like a marriage. It's, it's an invitation into eating at a table, a table of a certain family that's uniting us to God. You know, Jesus even talks about himself as, as the bridegroom in the scriptures that we read in Isaiah, talks about God as the bridegroom and the church, the people of God, as the bride. And so when we come to the communion table every Sunday, we're getting a chance in part to remember to take and to eat and remember whose family we belong to and who we're a part of together as a community. And the first time here that we see Jesus blessing the wine is at a wedding. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to think about. And, and as, I, as I've 
scoured a lot of commentaries and things just to hear, just to hear what kind of ideas scholars come up with of like why Jesus might have done this, this miracle uh, at a wedding in, in Cana. And ultimately they're like, well, we don't, we don't really know is kind of what they're saying. But um, the, the fact that Jesus is blessing wine at a wedding is incredibly significant because he is associating, he's beginning his association with himself and God in this way publicly as the bridegroom for the bride. And um, there is in the scriptures this story that Jesus and, and God are reuniting all throughout scripture, reuniting people who have been distanced in many different ways and different circumstances back to the divine, back to God's self in the person ultimately of Jesus. And it's a beautiful story of reconciliation, of hope, and ultimately of a reuniting of the biggest family that anyone could ever conceive of. But this story doesn't start out that way. It starts out with Jesus saying, calling his mom woman, first of all. <laughs> that is just not a good idea. I, don't, I just, no matter how many times I've read that, looked at that, and thought about that, prayed about that, I'm just like, no, that's just a bad idea, Jesus. Not good. And, th and that's where the story starts out. He says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Or another way of saying that, so this is written in Greek. This originally is written in Greek. But if we translated it to Jesus' home language, it would be this kind of idiom of like, what do we have in common in this situation? Like, like why we got to get involved in this type of situation here? And, and I think it, it's, it's just fascinating to me that, this is where we see Jesus's first miracle. It's like, he's like reluctant to get involved here. I mean, for me, this is, this is one of the most human moments that I could think of to see Jesus interacting with his mom in this kind of way. And uh, it, it, it's really interesting that Mary is the one who's recognizing that there is a need for change and that Jesus can bring about the change. And I think this is a really important and relevant as we think about uh, taking communion. Mary is almost in this moment, she's almost acting like a prophet would, like nudging God to change a situation, like asking God, will you intervene? I know that you can change the situation. And doesn't it feel like that sometimes when we're asking God to intervene and interact that God's like, hey, what's that got to do with me, right? Like, why are you bothering me with this? Don't we feel like that sometimes? But Mary recognized something and it's something that this writer and uh, theologian Walter Brueggemann, he writes a lot about this in this book, The Prophetic Imagination. And what Mary knew is something that he talks about, and that's this. It's what the prophetic tradition knows is that it could be different and that something could be different and that the difference can be enacted. Those two things. To, to receive 
the type of imagination and hope to say in your inner spirit that things could be different. That's something that you have felt discouraged about that seems unchangeable in the world beyond changing, beyond hope, that it's just always gonna be the way it is, that it could be different and that it's possible for that difference to happen, those two things together. Mary recognized that in this situation. Have, have you stopped doing that in your life? Have you stopped doing that in areas of, of, of the public realm? Have you stopped doing that in your interpersonal relationships or even within yourself? Believing that change can happen and that it could be enacted. In the Old Testament scriptures, the time of the Messiah was talked about a lot, what, what the world would, would begin to be like, what sort of things would change and happen. In, in Joel, the prophet Joel, he's one of the minor prophets, never could make it to the majors. He, he said, in that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the Acacias. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 25, six said this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Mary knew this and Mary looked at her 30 year old son, Jesus, and said like, hey, do something about this. Like, you're the guy. I, I can almost imagine. I've spent a lot of time imagining this, this scenario the past couple weeks because we have the snow day and all. I could just imagine Jesus being like, come on, mom. Like, quit, quit asking me to do stuff like this. Like, my time has not yet come. I'm like a big deal. Like, it's a big thing when I do this, right? Like, it's like, it's like when, you're, when, you're, when your parents' friends come over, you know, to eat dinner, and they're like, uh, honey, do that thing you do. Do that, you know, show them how you can, you can draw. Show them how you can, you can catch the football. And you're like, mom, it's not the right time. <laughs> I just can't help but think something like that was going on. But, but what do we do? What, what do we do when we have this, this unrelenting thought that, that things could be better, but, but, we, but we don't wanna face that level of hope? Because isn't it painful to hope in, on, in some areas of our life that things could get better without any of the tangible evidence in front of us that they will? Well, here's a lot of things we can do. I can relate to all of them. We, we can blame others that, that it's not changing. Like if this person would just change, then, then I, could, I could really believe in this hope. I could really have this. If, if just somebody else would change or, or we could blame it on the, the, the current place in the world we live in. Like if we could just go back to the old days, the golden age of this, that, or the other. A lot of people escape into that idea. If it was just like it used to be, then, then everything would be good. Or sometimes we just 
fall into cynicism. We say, well, it just can't happen. There's no use in hoping. There's no use in trying. There's no use in putting forth any effort in the things that I hope for that could be different in the world, specifically in areas where there is injustice, where things are, are wrong and people are being treated improperly, including us, that sometimes we deal with that just through sheer cynicism. We replace the thoughts of hope with thoughts of, nah, it can't happen and you're a fool if you think it can. I think probably the easiest, most accessible thing to a lot of us at Christ City would probably be just to numb those desires of hope just to numb it with cheap entertainment, with scrolling on your phone, with alcohol, with, you know, just whatever kind of cheap entertainment you enjoy. When we take communion, when we eat the bread and we drink the wine, it's an opportunity for us to re-engage in the hope that feels so distant and so far away. Every time we come up to the table and we eat that bread and we drink that wine, we're uniting at the same table with people of all different kinds all over the entire world. It's an, it's an opportunity for us to reorganize our heart around a hopeful possibility for the future. That, that Jesus said, hey, this is a new covenant and I'm establishing it for you, for you to receive, for you to have, not to earn, not to work for, not to figure it all out. But when you come to this table, there's other people who don't like you and you don't like them that are eating that bread and drinking that wine. And in that moment, you are eating at the same table of fellowship with God and with one another. That is kind of a miraculous thing. Where else in the world is that happening? Anywhere? Is that happening any other place where we can sit at the same cosmic table of fellowship and eat together? That's something that can revive our hope. There's a, a woman named Nora Gallagher. She, she wrote a beautiful book on communion, uh, the Eucharist is another name for communion. And she said this, she said, the regular practice of communion is meant to help us move from being the citizens of an empire to the citizens of heaven. Empire, that world, that place is a world of finite solutions. It's a world where if the Dow Jones isn't high enough or there's not enough uh, of billion dollar companies that are hiring people or there's not enough uh, uh, of benevolent rulers, that things can't happen. That things are now impossible and there's no use hoping and the only thing we should do is circle our own wagons and take care of our own, the people closest to us, the people most like us, the people that have the same kind of things to lose as us. But when we take communion, we have an opportunity to be reminded of whom we belong to and where we are citizens in the world. 
that we are in fact not citizens of an empire with limited options, limited resources, and limited solutions that usually means somebody else has to be suffering or punished, or we gotta spend more billions on bombs that we've already got stockpiled up while our schools and our other infrastructures and hospitals are crumbling. We don't have to live in that world and communion is a reminder of where our citizenship really lies. And that means that things that we have stopped hoping for to be possible can again, that hope can be reignited within us through that table. Can I get an amen from somebody at that point? Thank you. So um, communion reminds us to whom we belong. It reminds us that we can hope and that hope is connected to whom we belong to. That the table that we eat at was created by God coming and living in the flesh amongst us. And instead of saying, I'm gonna come down, I'm gonna punish you, I'm gonna uh, make sure everybody does the right things. I'm gonna retaliate for all the wickedness and all the harm that you have done to one another and to the earth that I gave you. I'm instead, I'm gonna take on your guilt, your punishment and your shame and I'm gonna establish a new community through my very body and blood. I'm gonna give you a new way to relate to each other through my suffering. I'm gonna take your suffering and make it my suffering and I'm gonna build a new family and community over the grace that covers you in that situation. All you gotta do is come and eat. So in this story, Jesus says, to Mary, his mom, he says, woman, what's that got to do with me? And then Mary responds like, just do whatever he tells you to do. She wasn't discouraged at all. <laughs> She's like, I got this, guys. And Jesus goes and he, he tells the, the servants at the banquet, fill up these giant stone pitchers, fill them up all the way. And, uh, you know, Jesus, when he decides he's going to go in, he's going all the way. It's like, I'm the Messiah, I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna make the wine flow. So wine gets filled up and, uh, and everybody has this great party. Like everybody gets to keep partying and having fun together at a wedding. And the amazing thing about this situation is, you know, communion or wedding, it doesn't happen by yourself. You can't get married by yourself, at least not yet. Maybe they'll figure out how to do that in our world at some point here. Uh, you could get married by yourself. And, and even Jesus's ministry, his, his, his kind of presence in the world as the Messiah didn't even happen by himself. He had to have his mom like nudge him come on, Jesus, it's time to come do this. So he doesn't have like a failure to launch situation going on. That's what Mandy said we were looking at this passage. But communion, it, 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 it sounds silly to have to say it, but it's communal. 
right? Jesus says this in, in Matthew 18, 20, he says, where two or three are gathered, I'm with them also. And I've, I've heard different discussions and read different Bible studies over the years about that and, and things. And, and, and the conversation usually devolves into some kind of, well, can't you just experience God by yourself and da, 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 and all that kind of talk. And it's like, well, yeah, of course you can. But I think the greater point, and especially as we're talking about communion here, is that God's relationship with us, sure, it's individual, but primarily the way that we see it is a connection of people, of, of anybody who wants to come to the table. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a belonging and a presence of God that cannot be experienced by yourself. Just like I couldn't experience all the words that I was saying, all the things that I believed when I was making my uh, marriage covenant until I did that with another person. Man, my experience, my understanding is completely different than it was before I had done that. So Jesus said, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. You ever, you ever thought that, like Jesus? Like, what do these problems have to do with me? Why am I supposed to care about these things? Why is there so much going on in the world that uh, somebody wants me to care about or be involved in? And the truth of the situation is we live in the most individualistic culture that's ever been on the face of the earth. We are skewed towards believing that our rights and freedoms are somehow independent of other people's lives and how other people's lives, how the earth are affected by the choices that we make. And of course, we're in the midst of seeing that unfold with, through the pandemic and all these types of things. And communion, when we come to this communion table, it answers that question that Jesus was asking. What does this have to do with me and you? It has everything to do with everyone. That, that when we eat of this, we're eating, you know, Jesus said, unless you, unless you uh, eat, of, eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? And everybody thought he was crazy. And, and later in the book of John, a bunch of people left. They're like, this dude's crazy. He's a cannibal. He wants us to eat him. Right? But when we are ingesting the bread and the wine, it's a reminder again of our interconnectedness with all of these other people doing the exact same thing, that our decisions make a huge difference. In fact, uh, we're, we're seeing this all over, all over nature constantly. The more we learn and the more we study that, like if we take away, like there's, some, there's like these birds that migrate for thousands of miles and along the way they'll stop at these islands and they'll, they'll feed on these little crab eggs. And people started using these crabs as like fish bait and stuff like that. And they started going endangered. And nobody knew that until these birds started dying and not being able to finish their migration patterns. And so they had to start protecting the crabs so that the crabs could lay the eggs so that the birds would have their protein to be able to make this thousands and thousands of mile flight and journey that embedded and encoded 
in the world that God has given us is interdependence, that we need one another, that we are connected to one another, that our choices, our freedoms also come with incredible responsibility and weight. Last week, we celebrated MLK Junior Day with our annual speech and discussion time, and I was reading uh, some of uh, King's essays and uh, some of his um, speeches and And this passage stuck out to me thinking about this sermon. He said, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Communion reminds us of this. It reminds us that we partake in the same body and that we are actually a part of the same body, the body of Christ. In Matthew 25, when people are feeding and clothing those who need clothes and food, uh, Jesus says, you did that to me. And, and the folks were like, we did? What? We didn't see you, Jesus. We didn't, we didn't see that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it was me. When you fed and clothed those people you saw, you did that to me. It's right there on the nose. King said something similar uh, in, a, in a nice pithy phrase. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Why else could it make sense that one man would die for the shame and the guilt and the sin of all people unless we were all together related in the same single garment of destiny? So so then it's like, well, yeah, then, oh, it's all the same. So I can kind of like expect everybody to do something for, for me. Like, like when I say we, like we're gonna do this, it's like the royal we, right, you know? Or it's like when my wife says, we're gonna do this project, this particular project in the backyard. It's like, no, you mean I'm gonna do the project, right? <laughs> no, again, this is not an abdication of our personal responsibility. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a heightened understanding of the personal responsibility that we have as a part of this huge body of this, of this unified body of Christ. This is why the disease of leprosy was so terrible. What? Whoa, that was a quick turn, right? Wasn't it? You see, leprosy, when you, if you've ever seen pictures or movies, you see people all bandaged up different parts of their body. And it's because the disease of leprosy caused parts of people's bodies to become numb. And so when they were moving through life, they could burn themselves or hurt themselves, hit their arms and their legs. If they were asleep, a a rat could gnaw on them and they wouldn't even feel it. And so over time, people lost parts of their body because they couldn't feel it. Communion is a reminder that we need every part of the body of Christ to be fully present and alive to care for one another. And finally, 
The last thing I want to say uh, about communion is it's both different and the same every time. In verse 10, it's the, the guy, the, the host of the, the wedding, he tastes the wine and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best till now. And again, I don't, I don't know if he meant that as a compliment to the people hosting the wedding. I think they kind of, he's kind of like, why did you do that? Like everybody's already drunk and they've already eaten and drank a bunch of stuff. Why are you giving them like the good stuff now? You're supposed to, supposed to front load the good stuff. And then when people's tastes have kind of numbed out, then you can give them the filler afterwards. But this isn't how human beings work. If you give the good stuff first, can you really experience it? Can you really enjoy it? If I give, if I give my eight-year-old like the, the finest paint materials, I'm an artist, if I give him like the best paints and the best stuff, is he gonna be able to appreciate that at that time? Probably not. And, and I think the same thing is true as we come to the communion table that we take this same thing every week. And, and maybe you've had experiences with God in the past. Maybe your conversion experience was really dramatic. And it seems like you got the good wine up front and now you're left with just like the filler stuff afterwards. But the last thing I, I wanna remind us of as we uh, come to the table in just a moment is that this is an opportunity every time coming to the same table, eating the same bread and the same wine, but every week in a different situation in different circumstances to have a chance to see when that new wine is gonna flow, when that, when that uh, better stuff is gonna come. You know, I sit at the same table with my family all the time and sometimes it's chaotic and crazy and it's really hard and my kids won't eat their dinner and they're running all over the place and that kind of thing. And sometimes we have beautiful moments at the table. And I think coming to the communion table is the same way. And there are even times and situations I didn't know that they would be ear markers in my life, that they would be memories that I looked back upon uh, as I was growing up and eating at my dinner table and eating with those people that I care about, that I rely on for soul sustenance and strength. And so what I wanted to be able to do this morning is give us some time to think about the communion table, how it unites us as kinfolk, as, as part of the same body all throughout uh, time and space with the body of Christ, the interconnected and interrelatedness of life, of the hope of being citizens of heaven and not of the empire. And so when we come to communion this morning, you may not experience any, uh, any magic, uh, but you might. But at the least, thinking and remembering that you get to be part of the biggest family that's ever been that you belong here, and that you belong because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the table, and thank you for what it means. Thank you for what it can help us to hope for. And I pray that you would birth new imagination in our hearts about 
what it means to belong to the body of Christ. Amen.